Our text this morning comes from uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, so you can be turning there. Find that if you're using one of our pew Bibles on page 311. While you're turning there, let me let me say, you know, you, you look around and um, come in on a Sunday morning, it's a little hard at times uh, these days to find a seat, and that is because God is calling about 30 people here to really commit to going to first service every week. And I know some of you have been waiting to feel the freedom to get up that early in the morning, and I want you to know that you just go ahead and feel free to do that. That is all right. We do. I really would encourage some of you guys to think about that so we can continue to welcome people in as they come and visit and come to second service. So think of first service. Uh, Now, for those of you that are just joining us this morning, we're uh, towards the end of a series on worship that we've called Vital Worship. Because we believe that that worship is vital in both senses of the word, that it is of incredible importance and centrality for us as Christians. And we believe it's vital in the sense that it is to be life-giving for us. That when we worship, uh, that is one of the ways in which we connect with our God who is the one who gives us life. And so worship is an important part of how we live before the face of God. And so to address that, These last number of weeks, we've been looking at the elements of worship. If you were to look at your order of worship, all those things that we do on a Sunday morning, taking a look at each one of those, talking about how this leads us in worship, that we might better lead lives of worship. Now, this week, we come to the uh, second sermon uh, on on preaching. Two weeks ago, we talked about kind of what is a sermon and, and why does it have such a central place in our worship and Last week, um, we talked about the Lord's Supper, and this week we're coming back to the second half of preaching, talking about what, is, what does it mean to be good listeners of sermons? How do we listen to sermons? Uh, that's sort of a practical question, isn't it? I mean, if you're coming here, you, you, you do that every week, and as I was thinking about it, over the course of my life, I've, I've probably heard 1,500, 1,800 sermons, and many of you have heard that many and, and many more, and can go back to our one hand and try to remember the details of any one of those sermons, but uh, we trust that you know the weekend week outness of that is is helpful for us. But you know I, I am and the, for the last few years, obviously for me, I'm one of who's giving bringing sermons to you as well. And so as both a listener of a sermon and a giver of one, I, I feel like I'm sort of uh, you know uniquely qualified to really reach across the aisle and address some of these issues. So um, we're going to do that this morning. Uh, but we do listen a lot. We hear a lot of sermons, and how are we going to hear those well? Okay, well, the text we're going to read this morning, I think, is going to open up something very central for us as listeners of sermons here in Second Kings 5. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll read, and we'll see what God has here for us. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, come before you this morning hoping to hear your word. Would you make us into listeners of the word. Lord, even this morning, would you open our ears and open our hearts that we might hear you, that we might be changed by your word, by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. Context here, uh, this happens during the the uh, time of Elisha the prophet, who was the, the successor to Elijah, the, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And uh, Elisha here comes into contact with an enemy, someone from the land of Syria, north of Israel, uh, one of Israel's enemies who comes looking for him. And so we're going to see a sermon preached and a sermon heard here in Second Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. 
because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and they said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, a servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two festal garments. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two festal garments and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and he put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? 
Was it a time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards and oxen and male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Looking at this text in 2 Kings 5, it may well be pretty new for many of you. Maybe this is one you've never come across. Maybe it's familiar for me this week. Um, I, it's, it's just become one of my, one of my favorite passages in, in Scripture. And I say that most weeks, but it really did this week. So, uh, Because here's what we see here. And, and again, in, in context of what we've been talking about in worship and what it means to listen to a sermon. Here's what I think we see in this story about what it means to listen to a sermon. It tells us about the posture of listening. What is the posture we're to have as we come and listen to God's word? Well, we see this get played out in the life of Naaman in, in several different stages. So we're just going to kind of walk through and see what happens to him. Look at, look at this first stage for him. His initial posture as we step into this passage is summed up in this way. He says, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. Look at verse 1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Okay, here is Naaman, this incredibly accomplished general. Okay, this, this, this self-made man, this one through his hard work and his discipline and his military success, has gotten one of the highest honors in the country. Now, we're a country... Um, you know, d- depending on our own state of war or lack of war, maybe that, that varies in our, uh, our genuine appreciation for our military. Uh, and often that's because here at home we feel very secure. But if you lived in their world and there were other nations all around you, you knew that day by day the only thing keeping you from being annihilated or enslaved was the strength of your army. And when, so for, for Naaman, the, you know, the chief general for this whole country, he was this man of incredible importance. You know, he is appreciated, he's considered great by the king himself. He's one of the few that would have an audience with the king. Uh, he is, uh, it also says, a, a mighty man of valor. He was a soldier among soldiers, a, a man among men, and he was a man of great power and ability. Uh, this, this man, name it, he, he was a William and Mary grad, uh, honestly. He was you know, he was hardworking, he was dependable, he was successful, he could come through under pressure. You send him on an all-night raid, he's used to all-nighters, he can pull it off. Naaman was the one who could get it done. And the thing that we see about Naaman here, even as we step into the story, is that Naaman was proud. Naaman was proud. Because he was a man who didn't need anything. Now, there was, of course, one glaring thing in his life, and we see that in verse 1 as well, that he was a leper. Now, that, the Hebrew word for leper could cover a, a wide variety of skin diseases, so we don't, we don't know exactly what the skin disease he had was, but it was obviously serious, and it's central to this story. And here's the thing, though. Uh, for the Israelites, uh, at, at least, and perhaps there was something similar in the, in the religious tradition of Syria, but in Israel, if you, if you were a leper, then you were considered ceremonially unclean, and you were not allowed to come into the public worship of God. And if you were someone walking down the street and you were a leper, you were, you were supposed to yell out as you walked down the street, unclean, unclean, so that the crowd could divide in front of you and no one would get too close and no one would touch. You were, uh, in many ways, an outsider. Yet he, the leper in his country, has risen to such prominence, 
but with this one thing, that he's a leper. He begins with, I don't need anything, but as the story goes on, we see it switch to, I need something and I can obtain it for myself. Okay, it's one thing to be a leper, and it's one thing to be uh, this powerful man in his country, but notice what happens. He, he has this slave girl that's a part of his household whose family was likely slaughtered by Naaman or one of the other soldiers, and she is hauled away into slavery, and she now comes into service in Naaman's house. And, and what, did, what does she say? In spite of all that's happened to her, she tells her mistress, she says, you know, there is a prophet, there is a prophet in Samaria who could heal Naaman. There is hope for him. And so suddenly he comes, becomes this man who first was a man with no needs to now a man who can own up to his needs because there is hope. A man who can own up to his needs. Uh, I need something and I can obtain it for myself. Because what does he do? Naaman in his power comes to seek that healing. What does he do? He goes to the king of Syria and he asks for leave to go and to seek this out. And the king sends him on his way with his blessings. In fact, he says, let me write a, king, a letter to the king of Israel of introduction and political pressure so that we can make sure you get this healing that you want, Naaman. So he sends him. And Naaman's first stop is, of course, where else would you find uh, this kind of power of healing other than in the halls of power? So he comes to the king of Israel, presents the letter, and says, I'm ready to be healed. The king of Israel tears his robes in despair. How am I going to do this? Who does he think I am? And then he gets word from Elisha, send him to me. And so he does. And we pick up the story when he comes uh, to Elisha's home. Pick up with me in verse uh, 5. We'll step back to say one thing. The king of Syria says, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And look at how Naaman comes. So he went, taking with him Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. Okay, if you were to do, this is uh, sort of rough math, but even if you were just to take the ten talents of silver and take what that was worth in his day and translate it into today's uh, currency, the silver alone would have been worth several million dollars. This is an enormous treasure. Naaman says, I'm going to go buy the thing that I am seeking. So he takes that and eventually he ends up at Elisha's door. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And you can imagine uh, Naaman in his strength with this retinue of his horses, his chariots, his soldiers, this incredible fortune that he brings with him in this, this little hill town outside this little house, and he comes and knocks on the door. I'm here for my healing. I need something, and I can obtain it for myself. Elisha, come out. I've come to buy something from you. Well, he's gone from I don't need anything to I need something, I can obtain it by myself and for myself. Uh, But then there's another twist in the story for Nathan, or from uh, Naaman. It becomes, I need something but not this. Because this is the point in the story where God really begins to overturn Naaman's pride in earnest. Because it has to be overthrown. Look what happens next. Elisha sends a servant to answer the door. And he comes with this message. Verse 10. Elisha sent a message to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. Okay, this is the sermon at the heart of the text. 
this message that Elisha brings. In fact, he doesn't even bring it firsthand. He gives it to his servant to come. So it's a secondhand sermon that he gets. And this is a total aside, but if, if Elisha had accepted the treasure, which we see later he doesn't, okay, this would have been the best paying sermon ever preached anywhere. And it was like 15 words long, and he gave it secondhand. Uh, but we're going to see uh, he doesn't take the money later on. But, but what we do see here is Naaman offended angry. Because Naaman's come in his pride, but he says, I need something, but I don't need this. You know, verse 11 talks about him being angry. He says, you know, I expected to come here and I expected the prophet himself to come out, at least have the respect to come out and speak to me himself. And then I expected him to come out and call upon, you know, this God of his and wave his hand and, you know, do something and the, the leprosy was going to be gone and All I get is him coming out and telling me to go take this ceremonial washing. It gets worse. You see his his ethnic pride as well. He says, here I am in this stinking country. He wants me to go to their little river and take a bath. Aren't the rivers of my great country better than this? What am I doing here? And he says that he goes off, verse 10, or verse 12, in a rage. Because he needs something, but he doesn't need something this. He doesn't need this bitter pill to swallow. He doesn't need this kind of offense to his pride. Have you ever, have you ever heard a sermon and just gotten angry? And not just angry because there was something going on you just didn't want to hear? I have. You've never gotten angry at a sermon? Um, well, maybe if not, maybe we should get angrier at sermons more. Maybe that would mean we're listening. Because Naaman listened and he hears God's word to him. He's mad. He's offended. So he goes away in this rage, offended, because here's what Elisha is saying, or what Naaman is saying, saying, look, what I expected was the prophet himself to come out here, and I was ready for whatever he gave me. Elisha comes out and he says, I can heal you, but it is going to cost you. Look at the treasure that I brought. Name your price. Or Elisha come out and say, "Uh, you can be healed, but there's this great task that you must accomplish first. Here is Naaman commander of the army, man among men, bring it. I can do it, whatever the task is. Because Naaman wants to be addressed in his strength. And Elisha sends a message that addresses Naaman in his weakness. Go and be washed. And it's not the answer that that Naaman wanted. He stumbles on the answer that's given to him by Elisha. It's the same kind of stumbling that Paul speaks to us of in in 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he says here. He says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, in the wisdom of God. Paul is saying God's word has always had this effect on people. He says, Paul says, when we get up and preach about the only way to be reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus, this crucified Messiah raised from the dead, Paul says everywhere we go, it causes people to stumble. For those of Jewish backgrounds, he says, you know, their question is, show me some dramatic sign. All you've got is a crucified Messiah, and it is a stone on which they stumble. This can't be good news. And he says he comes to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, and what they want to hear is these words of great philosophical wisdom, not something as common and as offensive as a broken man on a cross. 
Paul says the gospel has always been offensive, and it always comes and offends our pride right at its very heart. That's what's happening to Naaman. He says, I need something, but not this. And then we begin to see the turn to I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go. Verse 14. Excuse me, verse 13. Turns away, went away in a rage, but his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, go wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What happens? Verse 14, his home group stages an intervention. Naaman, you heard the sermon. Didn't you hear what he said? Forget your pride. He said, if you go wash in the river, you're going to be made clean. Are you going to turn your back on that and walk away? Are you really going to do that? And something breaks in Naaman. Something has to happen for him to set aside his pride, to no longer cling to his own importance, and finally he's willing to take what is freely being offered to him. Uh, It reminds me of a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's a character uh, in Dawn Treader named named Eustace, this, this kid who's ended up in Narnia and uh, in, in one of their adventures, he, they end up coming across this dragon in, in a cave who has this hoard of treasure, this enchanted treasure, and, uh, and Eustace cannot keep his hands off of it, and he takes one piece of it, this, this golden bracelet, and he sticks it on his arm. And when he does that, he wakes up the next day, and he finds that the greed and the covetousness in his heart that made him reach out and grab that, this magic bracelet, has uh, burst forth in... Uh, and he has himself turned into a dragon. He's become on the outside what he already was on the inside, and he goes for days not knowing how to be changed back until one day he comes uh, and encounters Aslan, the lion, and he comes back and tells one of his friends what has happened to him as he has been transformed back. Listen to what he says. He talks about Aslan leading him to a well. He said, I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must first undress. Mind you, I don't know if he actually said any words, but out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes, when suddenly the thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins... Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. Then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I were a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped out and left it lying beside me in the other one and went down to the well for my bath. 
Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins will I have to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, I I don't know if it spoke, he said, you'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. There it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath that I, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me in the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. And that's what Naaman comes and finds when finally he is willing to roll over and say, God, have your work, have your way with me. My pride will not carry me any further. Help me to lay it down. Because the story starts with Naaman in his strength, and it ends with him owning up to his weakness. Isn't it amazing that it is, in fact, this weakness, this leprosy of Naaman's, that has been the silent tool all along that has brought Naaman from this place of pride and alienation from God, from a foreign land, to the God of Israel, that he might come and know healing and life and forgiveness But we see as Naaman in the midst of his posture, and as his posture changes from one of pride to one of humility, and I think one of the things that we just see on display in Naaman's life is that God's word only takes root in a humble heart. And in fact, for Naaman, his experience, it's God's word that even does the work of making his heart humble, of readying him that he might be one who obeys. That's what Jeremiah 23 says about God's word. He says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And that hammer came and found the hard heart of Naaman and left him utterly changed. This self-made man, this proud man of high position, of great success, comes and finds a whole new life. Think about the subtlety of our own pride. Now we maybe, even as we are listeners of sermons, we're rarely as self-consciously defiant maybe as uh, Naaman was when when he hears his sermon. Um, I'm yet to see many people leaving in an actual rage, uh, stomping out after the service. It it, it might well have happened. Um, But think about the more subtle ways that we too, in our pride, turn off the Word of God in our life, even in the course of a sermon. Start hearing something you don't like. 
I mean, that's his opinion. I guess that's one way to read the text. I can't really trust these young preachers anyway, you know? Or what about this one? You know, this is such a great sermon for my wife. I'm so glad she is sitting here listening to this. Or I've got this friend who really needs to hear this. You know what it's like in the even very subtle ways that our own pride acts as this filter to the Word of God penetrating and bringing real change. And yet it's the only thing that can. Naaman has to have his pride ripped away. And that, for him, was a great gift. Because this God that he comes and encounters in Israel is the God who has been pursuing him and bringing him to life and unwilling to let him go unchanged. We too are called to be people who listen and who have a posture of listening. Could it be that even in something as ordinary as this, us gathering together on a Sunday morning and opening God's Word, and you hearing a sermon, that God could use that to literally transform your life. It's what happened to Naaman. It's the good work that God is about through His Word in your life too and in my life as well. And that's what's offered to us. And let me just, you know, in conclusion, though, we've got to point back to one other person in the story. Because we've talked a lot, of time about, a lot about talking about uh, Naaman, but, but he has, a, he has a, a paired character, a foil in this story. And that's the servant of the prophet Gehazi. Do you remember what happens to him? On the one hand, you've got Naaman, this outsider, trapped in his pride, who comes and meets the true God and is transformed. And on the other hand, you've got Gehazi, this one who has grown up with this. Very religious. It's been a part of what he's lived and breathed every day of his life. Yet he is the one who walks out of this story unchanged. Because when he sees God's grace being poured out on Naaman, his enemy, and Elisha doesn't even take a penny from him, what does he say as he sees Naaman and his retinue disappearing into the distance? How could my master spare him? I am going to go and get something from him because this man does not deserve what he has just found. Naaman comes and finds God's grace being poured out on him. And Gehazi, the one who is close, who has seen God's grace being poured out again and again and again, misses it for himself. Because he sees, unlike, we see in him, that unlike Naaman, his heart has, been, has not been transformed by the very grace he has been living and breathing so long. And so the story ends in a very sobering way. Naaman leaving, utterly transformed. And Gehazi, the one who is on the inside, suddenly finding that all along he has been on the outside. Because he too is desperately in need of the same grace. But his eyes are not open and his pride has not yet been turned away. Would we be people who hear the voice of our God? Naaman heard that through the voice of the prophet. But we hear it more clearly more beautifully still. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Elisha. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
who do, whose voice do we hear when we come? When we open this book and you hear God's word proclaimed, the voice of our Savior, Jesus. This is the voice that comes and breaks through our pride. This is the voice that comes and brings formerly proud people to humility and healing and life. This is the voice that we must listen to. May we become more and more and better and better listeners of the word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as proud and recovering proud people that you would continue to strip away the pride, that you would open our stopped up ears, that you would wipe the fog out of our eyes, that we might see you, that we might hear your voice, and that we might respond in joy. Even this week, Father, would you expose us that we might be healed. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.